This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of November 15th. And uh, we have Ken Jennings hosting. 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 Hosting Jeopardy. Not the host, but hosting. Why are they saying that? It's so weird. I don't know. I, I hope we'll find out. Yep. So I thought Ken did a great job this week. And on Monday, we have the contestants Jeff Myers, an accountant from Redondo Beach, California, Molly Carroll, a CPA from Austin, Texas, and Andrew He, a software developer from San Francisco, California, whose three-day cash winnings total $107,101. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, World Colleges and Universities, Time, A Person, Place, or Ring, novel quotes, foreign words and phrases, and what a team, a in quotation marks. I still feel like Ken hasn't quite gotten his nose, no responses, kind of fine-tuned. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. They're, they seem they seem slow. Yeah. It seems like there have been a no- number of instances where it just took a while for him to get to the no. Yeah. And some of them feel leading to me, although I Mm -hmm. think he's trying to eliminate that. Mm. I would think, like, ideally you would want your host to say no in a way that doesn't indicate whether the person was close. Yeah, I would think so, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I felt like he was kind of struggling to not indicate in a couple of those foreign words and phrases clues, the 200, this German exclamation means health. Andrew tried what's Prost, and that was not correct. And then Molly got in with what's Gesundheit. And then the 600 French for good journey. It's what you wish someone before they set off on a trip. Andrew tried what's Bonjourne. That means like good day, I believe, but that's not correct. And then Molly got that one. Oh, two two rebounds for Molly off of Andrew in this category. Uh, Molly got that one. It's Bon Voyage. Daily double number one was pick number one. Andrew found it at the $1,000 level of a person, place, or ring. And of course, everyone's at zero. And he wagers 1000 He gets the clue, when water is low, minerals leave a so-called bathtub ring in lakes like this. Man made one in Utah and Arizona, named for an explorer. And they showed a picture... And he gets it correct, and that is Lake Powell. Popular destination for people in my neck of the woods to go vacation at. Mm. It sounded familiar once he said it, but I was not able to recall that one myself. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Andrew is in a slight lead at 5,600. Molly is at 5,400, and Jeff is at 2,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, National Geographic Ocean, A Global Odyssey. That is a a new book, and there's a bunch of visual clues in that category. Islands of Europe, composers, famous names, elaborating on the Hitchcock title, and words with a single vowel. Which, I mean, we are, I guess, deciding that W doesn't count as a vowel, which is fine. At the $800 level, as Dorothy walked through Oz, now and then there came a deep this sound from some wild animal, and that's a growl. 
Andrew tried to roar, but that definitely has two vowels. <laughs> but it's growl. Yeah. I mean, A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. I mean, depending on the language it's coming from, though. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes, stuff. Yep. So I, I have this year started teaching a music appreciation class at my high school. We're not yet to the 20th century, so I have mentioned three of the five people in this category and intending to do the other two. Uh, so this this felt really good to me. The first pick of the round was a $1,600 level. Some historians think it was Mozart who was jealous of this Italian, a success at the imperial court, not the other way around. Uh, Molly got that. That's Salieri. The, I mean, if you've seen Amadeus, that kind of has instilled in uh, like modern popular fiction that Salieri was, you know, Mozart's rival and all of that. Historically, that's not really terribly accurate. Like the clue says, it's possible Mozart was jealous of him. They were just kind of like contemporaries. Mm -hmm. And they were in competition to a degree, but they weren't like, they didn't hate each other. However, when Mozart died, one of his, uh, one of the biographers that wrote his biography soon after his death strongly hinted that perhaps Salieri had poisoned him. And so that's where that came from. But Salieri at the time was like, wait, what? What are you, <laughs> what are you talking about? Where, did, where is this coming from? And it totally destroyed his career. Salieri is actually kind of a, like a, a sad figure in music history yeah. because he didn't really do anything wrong, except that I guess Mozart didn't care for him. And that led to these wildly false accusations. Hmm. So there you go. Huh, that's fascinating. Daily Double number two uh, comes up as the second pick. So super early in the round um, at the $1,600 level of famous names. And Molly finds it. She's at 7,000 in a slight lead to Andrew's 5,600. Jeff's at 2,800. And she makes it a true Daily Double. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she does. Good move. Um, and she gets the clue. In 1922, this archaeologist sent a cable saying, at last have made wonderful discovery in Valley. And she has to really work for it. She says, who is Howard Carter? Which, like, weirdly, Howard was also, I was like, it's Howard something. Howard. How I don't know. Um, but she got to it. Carter. How, Howard Carter. Um, Two and, first names. Yes. That is, has Carter always been, like, I feel like Carter is like a last name that became a first name. I don't know. In recent maybe. years. I could be mistaken, though. So that's correct. Um, Ken notes, sometimes our brain knows things we don't know they know, which, <laughs> accurate. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. That's that's what that feeling is. Lori Lander Goodman covered this for us uh, when she was guest hosting in her deep dive. Yep. Yeah. About Egyptology. That's that is, right. That's right. So Molly jumps up with that uh, with that big wager. Mm -hmm. And then Daily Double number three is back in that composer's category. It's at the $800 level. Pick number 18. At this point, Andrew has managed to make it up to a tie or make it back up to where Molly is. Uh, he's at 14000 and he makes it a true Daily Double. Wagering 14000 on this. Uh, again, it's an $800 level, so it's probably the time to go for it. He gets the clue. He was born near St. Petersburg in early June 1882. No wonder his music is right for spring. <laughs> right spelled R-I-T-E. And uh, he gets that correct with who is Stravinsky. Yeah, that R-I-T-E clue 
I think mid's very easy, but that's fine because it's an $800 clue. Right. Yeah. And if it hadn't been, I mean, it might have been almost too hard because, I mean, who knows what composer was born in 1882 right. in St. Petersburg. That Like... That's not pointing really clearly to anybody. Yeah, you're not. So. Yeah, there's not an expectation for Jeopardy that you would that you would get it from that piece yeah. of information. <laughs> right, that you just have yeah. birth years of everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Andrew is in a lock tie position, uh, which is to say he has exactly twice Molly's score. He's at thirty thousand four hundred to Molly's fifteen thousand two hundred. And then Jeff is trailing with 13,200. So in a situation like this, if your contestants know what they're doing, then the person in second place will bet everything. Mm-hmm. And the person in first place will either bet zero, which means they will certainly not lose in the final Jeopardy round, but they might have to go to a tiebreaker or they will bet a dollar or maybe a little more than a dollar, you know, depending on the situation so that they can conceivably, well, I guess they could conceivably win even if they bet zero. So, but, but that means that if they get it right, then they win. Yeah. If they get it wrong, they might still win depending on what happens with the other contestants. Um, so the question is, do you want to risk losing in final jeopardy or do you want to risk going to a tiebreaker? Yeah. Which, We've talked about plenty of times. Yep. But yeah, that's the position that Andrew is in. Yep. So our final Jeopardy category is myths and legends. And the clue is this legendary place has been identified as being in Caerleon, Wales. How do, how would you pronounce that? Caerleon? Caerleon? Uh, if it's Welsh, it's probably like Caerleon. Yeah. Because <laughs> Welsh is the best language. Yeah. Yep. All right. This legendary place has been identified as being in Caerleon, Wales, and in Winchester, England. I would recommend going back and listening to my Arthuriana deep dive. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure I mentioned these specific places, but this came right to me. And uh, it was all, all three of the contestants got it as well. So Jeff has something crossed out. What is Camora? Not sure what he was thinking of there, um, but he crossed that out and wrote what is Camelot. That is correct. He's wagered 2001 to bring him up above Molly's score. And Molly has written what is Camelot, and she's wagered everything as we expected she would. Mm-hmm. And Andrew has wit- written what is Camelot, and he wagered a dollar to uh, get him up above Molly. He wants to win in Final Jeopardy if he can, and he can. So with 30,401, he is our winner going into Tuesday. And on Tuesday, we have the contestants Rebecca Clark, an administrative assistant and theater director from Santa Cruz, California. Michael Garnieri, a film critic and conflicts analyst from Louisville, Kentucky. And Andrew He, a software developer from San Francisco, California, whose four-day cash winnings are now $137,502. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Look at that mountain! <laughs> There's an exclamation mark, so I have to... TV crime families. Book titles en français. A phrase of turn. American Idol, I-D-L-E. And The X Factor. Where everything has to do with X. In some way. And we get the first Daily Double at the second pick of the round. Andrew wanted to take us right across the bottom row, and he finds Daily Double number one. 
at the $1,000 level of American Idol. He's picked up a thousand from the previous clue. The other two contestants are at zero. And he makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. Mid 20th century California pioneered these two word places to relax, making them from old wine vats. And he freezes up a little bit. He tries, what are sweat lodges? That's not correct. Hot tubs was the response here. So that drops him back down to zero, but you know, two clues into the round and everybody's at zero. So it's, Mm -hmm. that's fine. Yeah. And the daily doubles off the board. Yep. So I thought the book titles en français were fun. I don't know. You, you don't speak French, especially. Did they, did they seem accessible to you? Was there enough here that like you could identify a few words and try and make a reasonable guess? Yeah, for the most part, for someone who who has not studied French at all, like the little French I have picked up has been from the handful of days that I have spent in Paris and then anything that historically is French music, like, uh, which is not much. Mm -hmm. But like I was able to get the old man in the sea because I I know Olm and La Mer. Mm -hmm. So I was able to put together like man and and sea. Uh, The cat in the hat, I, I got... Like the le chat, like I got the cat. Le chat and le chat chapeauté. <laughs> chapeauté, which and I and I like I knew I was like, what is a chapeau? What does that mean? And but I I wasn't able to get there quickly. Obviously, the the contestants were able to get there much faster than me. But seeing it, it's something I'd be able to work out. Probably not on stage though. Yeah, we had a we had a rebound on the thousand dollar level there the clue was a book for the entire galaxy salut et encore merci pour le poisson that's um (laughs) uh and i also like i know the book title but then i tried to like like my brain went to translating it literally which is also Mm -hmm. what happened with andrew he said goodbye and and then timed out and then michael got the rebound uh that's so long and thanks for all the fish Yes. Um, yeah. So, I knew le poisson. I knew fish. Yep. Yeah. And, and like so long is like kind of idiomatic English. And so you have to kind of pick the appropriate, like pick like a French goodbye that kind of matches the formality level, you know. Mm-hmm. But like there's no like word for word so long uh, expression in French, yeah. I think. Right. So you had to you couldn't just translate it word for word. You had to like know the book title and kind of make the connection. I think I think probably Merci pour le poisson is you know if you if you if you know the book title so long and thanks for all the fish, it's probably good. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Andrew's at sixty four hundred, Michael's at fifty eight hundred, Rebecca's at twelve hundred, and we have the double Jeopardy categories: historic names, opera source material, exoplanets airports, comedians' catchphrases, and words that should rhyme. I liked words with that should rhyme. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, those are good good wordplay ones. Like the $800 level, a pungent bulb vegetable and a constellation named for a mythological hunter. That's Onion and Orion. Mm-hmm. And it made, like, I just took the, took a moment to think, what if we pronounced it or, 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 ori, orion. Orion, onion, yeah. Orion. <laughs> How do you, like, I can't or, even work my or, mouth or around it. Or could be Orion. pronounced Onion. Onion, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that would, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. My third grader is a is a big reader who like learns a lot of words by reading them before he ever hears them. And so I'm like, as he tries to pronounce things out loud that he's not sure he's ever heard pronounced out loud, I'm like noticing recently kind of mm-hmm. all of those words where you just have to kind of know it. Um, right. Which is so many in English. So many. Oh, the uh, $1,600 clue of exoplanets. So far, about two-thirds of all exoplanets discovered have been found by the space telescope named for this German astronomer, uh, Michael Guest, who is Copernicus. Andrew got the rebound with uh, who is Kepler. If any of you listeners are on Twitter and you f- don't follow Alex Jacob, uh, he he made this like MS Paint explanation, I guess, of Copernicus and uh, Kepler and Tycho Brahe, which is, it's just like stick figures describing who they are and it's pretty good i'm definitely going to remember it better thanks to that hmm. uh, if you get a chance to check that out it's pretty good i have not been on twitter a lot this week which you can probably tell because the podcast account has been completely silent um <laughs> so i'm going to look it up now also don't spend too much time on twitter right now because big news things which always make it worse oh yeah Ugh. Daily Double number two is in the historic names category at the $1,600 level. Uh, It's pick number six, and Michael finds it. Uh, He's up to 11,400. He went on a kind of a run at the start of the the Double Jeopardy round and took a big lead. Uh, And so he wagers 4,000. And he gets the clue. Albert of Brandenburg, the Archbishop of Mainz, received a copy of this October 31st, 1517 document. And he doesn't know it, but he guesses what's the Gutenberg Bible which Ken informs him is a very good guess because Gutenberg was also in Mainz, which is uh, interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, But that's incorrect. It is the 95 Theses. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Yep. And Daily Double number three is in the airports category at the $2,000 level. And Rebecca finds this one at the 16th pick. She has 5,200 at this point to Andrew's 16,000 and Michael's 8,200. She wagers 3,000 and gets the clue at Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport. Art lovers can enjoy a sampling of paintings from this nearby national museum. And she can't come up with anything. She says, I got nothing. Uh, That's the Rijksmuseum. Which I remember, I, I always... Every time I have to think of the Rijksmuseum, I have to remember, is it Rijks or Reich Museum? Mm. But I, I taught myself that if it's Reich, then it's got to be German. Therefore, if it's Dutch, it's Reichs. Yeah. Which I, that's not based on anything other than just trying to keep it, you know, square in my head. Yeah. I went to the Rijksmuseum very shortly after filming Jeopardy. That was our, our big trip for probably the biggest one that we've been on i don't know <laughs> in a long time honestly well yeah but for sure yeah the reich's museum is pretty cool i believe that i'd like to get there uh so at the end of the double jeopardy round andrew is in a lock position at twenty one thousand two hundred. michael's at nine thousand and rebecca's at fifty eight hundred after michael's miss on daily double number two andrew just took control of everything and we get the final jeopardy category movie quotes and the clue, this three-word phrase was the protagonist's second line of dialogue in a 1962 movie, the first in a 25-film series. And so the 25-film series kind of points to pretty much one option, mm-hmm. which they all, or at least they mostly got to. Rebecca wrote, what is Bond, James Bond? 
And that is correct. And she wagered 3201, so she moves up to 9001. Michael also wrote, what is Bond, James Bond? Uh, and he wagered everything, so he went up to 18,000. Andrew wrote, what is I'm the Batman? <laughs> presumably going for Batman. Uh, and he wagered uh, elite 1,337. <laughs> and that is incorrect. <laughs> nerd. <laughs> what a nerd. Uh, but he still wins because he was in a lock position. Yeah. He didn't, didn't bet too much. Mm -hmm. It immediately came to my mind. I was like, okay, so this is James Bond. But is it Bond James Bond or is it shaken, not stirred? I did not even consider Bond James Bond. I was like, it, those are the James Bond movies. Obviously, it's shaken, not stirred. Yeah, like, lock it in. I know the answer. Um, right. <laughs> That's a wonderful feeling. And then when it's wrong, you're like, oh, oh no. no. At least yeah. at least in the comfort of your own home, you can be, like, quietly wrong and be like, oh, this is a, that would be embarrassing. Yeah. But if it's, like, pub trivia, you know, and you're, mm -hmm. like, insistent, you're like, guys, I got this. And then it's wrong, and you're like, I was so confident. Yeah. Uh, it's the worst I feeling. That feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I was like, well, second line of dialogue is like, that's early for, you know, like, but like, okay, like, maybe it like opens like, you know, at a party, right? And like, <laughs> and he, yeah, and James Bond is drinking. He orders himself a drink. Well, and then sense. we, yeah, <laughs> we set the scene. Yeah, no. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants, Amy Schneider, an engineering manager from Oakland, California. Max McDonald, a freelance artist and designer from Brooklyn, New York, and Andrew He, a software developer from San Francisco, California, whose five-day cash winnings total $157,365. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Nations by World Heritage Sites, Italian Arts and Culture, Biblical First Names, It's a New Machine, 1985 in Entertainment, and Beverage Rhymes. Beverage rhymes was fun. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. We've had a lot of good wordplay going on in this this here week. Yes. Yeah, lots of lots of good wordplay this week. You're right. I thought the hardest one of the of the batch was the six hundred dollar level though. Uh, the kind of people who like the whole or skim beverage. Andrew got that. It's milk ilk. I don't know, ilk, I think I had a hard time pulling. Um Yeah. The $1,000 level came right to me. A clause in a rock band's contract that assures they have their favorite fermented apple drink. That's a cider rider. Yeah, I thought that one was more gettable than... Yeah. Yeah, probably milk ilk. I, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. Not to, not to nitpick the <laughs> difficulty levels. But, that's, but we have an entire podcast about it. So there we go. <laughs> we have an entire podcast just for nitpicking the difficulty levels of the Jeopardy clues. The... Biblical first names category, I don't have a whole lot to talk about there, but unless there's something I'm not thinking of, the $800 level, it's a name now, but in the Bible, it's mostly a place. Yeah. Spelled a variety of ways, this girl's name is shared by TV personality and entrepreneur Frankel and surfer Hamilton. And the correct response there is Bethany. Andrew got that one. And in the Bible, I'm thinking of like, Bethany as a place, right? Like, is there a, like, Mary of Bethany? Or a, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Yeah. But I don't think that it's a first name in the Bible or certainly not of any prominent characters or figures. Yeah. 
it doesn't it doesn't quite fit the same way as the other clues. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the Italian arts and culture category at the $800 level. Max finds it at pick number eight. He and his mighty beard are at $1,400 over Andrew's zero and Amy's $1,000. And he bets all $1,400 because why not? That's the time. And he gets a clue. It's the Italian name for the lively folk dance, also known as the Dance of the Spider. And he has no response, but that is the Tarantella. It helps if you have seen dozens of stage productions of Peter Pan. <laughs> dozens. I think, I think I might have seen dozens. I feel like I've seen. I feel like I've seen I, dozens. I imagine that would help. <laughs> there is a a song in the like the stage version of Peter Pan where Captain Hook wants to sing a song. And Smee asks, what tempo? And he says, a tarantella. And then he sings Hook's tarantella. Okay. That was that was my connection. That was That's that's where I picked that up. Okay. Yep. Good to know. <laughs> I probably haven't seen dozens of productions of Peter Pan, but I don't know. It's very kid-friendly. We saw every one that was anywhere within range of us. I don't know. <laughs> saw it a lot of times. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Andrew is up to 7,200. Max is at 1,200, Amy's at 3,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, the Pittsburgh Address, It's History, Reader's Digest, Science, Grammy's Album of the Year, and same first and last letter. We get one of my favorite words in the Pittsburgh Address category at the $1,600 level. 1197 West Carson Street, the Duquesne Incline, is one of these cable-drawn railways from Latin for rope. Max got that with what is funicular. Funicular, yes. That's a funicular word. Mm-hmm. I've never read the book that's referenced in the $2,000 level of Reader's Digest, but I have seen the film, which is marvelous. Clue there is Split Cod is on an earlier menu for this Denison title character. But after winning the French lottery, her feast is in order. And Amy got that one. That's Babette. Babette's Feast. Great movie. I've never seen it. It's got religious themes, so it it's a good sermon illustration or a good thing like to, to watch watch in church. Um, but yeah, no, it's this like very kind of austere puritanical community where a, a French woman comes to kind of work as like a cook and housekeeper, and then she wins the lottery and cooks this amazing feast for them that turns out to like she spends i think everything that she won cooking this unbelievably extravagant feast for these like very kind of abstemious people and sort of helping them to uh kind of see that there is value in the joys of life Mm. yeah it's great it's a it's a good one Daily Double number two is the seventh pick of the round it's at the twelve hundred dollar level of its history and Amy finds it. She's at 7,600 to Andrew's 8,000 and Max's 2,400. She wagers 2,000 only and gets the clue. In 1756, Voltaire wrote that this, which had lasted nearly a thousand years, was none of the three elements in its name. And she gets that one. It's the Holy Roman Empire. Which is a clever observation. It is. I think it was referenced in a saturday night live sketch called coffee talk is this like on your (laughs) radar at all (laughs) i think i've i've seen coffee talk like once 
it, that does not ring a bell. Yeah, like there would be moments where Mike Myers's character was like overcome with emotion and would then like direct people, like give people a conversation topic and direct them to discuss it amongst themselves. Yeah, talk like, amongst yourselves, yeah, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so and so one one of these conversation topics was the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. But <laughs> but another one was Dr. Pepper was neither a doctor nor a pepper. pepper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, and Daily Devil number 3 is in the science category at the $1600 level. 15th pick Andrew finds it. Uh he is at 10,800. Uh, ahead of Max is 4,000 and behind Amy is 12,800. And he bets it all because he's behind. And that's what he does when he's behind. <laughs> or not in an, in an extreme lead, he bets it all. And he gets a clue. It's the process of atoms acquiring a positive or negative charge as when sodium and chlorine combine to make salt. And he ponders it for a while, uh, but he gets to what is ionization. And that is correct. So at the end of the double jeopardy round... Andrew's at 26,800, Amy's not too far behind with 19,600, and Max is at 6,800, and we have the final Jeopardy category, Final Resting Places, and the clue, a cemetery on this island has the graves of Robert Fulton and two of the first four treasury secretaries. Max came up with what is Martha's Vineyard, that's not correct, he's wagered all but $2, 67.98, so that drops him down. Amy has the correct response. What is Manhattan? As we've noted on the podcast, something's relevance to trivia has to do with really like how close it is to Manhattan. So, you know, right. We're right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should have known this. Yeah. Is um, what we're saying. I, I was trying to get more specific than Manhattan. Stupidly. I, I got to Long Island and I was like, maybe that's it. I don't know. Yeah. I bet it's a New York island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ful- Fulton and Treasury Secretaries, I was like, well, that's probably Hamilton. Somewhere in my brain, I knew that Hamilton was buried in Manhattan, but I don't know. Anyway, so Manhattan is correct. Amy's wagered 12000 bringing her up to 31600 And Andrew did not quite get it. He got to New York, but guessed what is Ellis Island? And with a, with a 12401 wager that is a cover bet so that drops him down to 14,399 into second place and amy is our winner today that's right so andrew he won five games he'll be in the tournament of champions and amy schneider takes over as champion so on thursday we get the contestants taylor mills a development finance manager originally from mansfield texas Bonnie Lapwood, a city planner from Atlanta, Georgia, and Amy Schneider, an engineering manager from Oakland, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $31,600. And we get the Jeopardy round categories. Dance in history. Amend the amendment. They replaced one word in the amendment and you have to fix it. A fair piece of entertainment. Out of the cradle. Um, using the letters in the cradle to make the correct response. Looking for lunch and in all the wrong places. <laughs> Ridiculous pun right there. It's great. Nice se- self-reference in the amend the amendment category at the $200 level. Fifth, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in Pictionary of life or limb. Uh, Amy got that. That's Jeopardy. 
Ken noted that it's on all the signs. Which seems unfair. That's like giving the contestants the answer. Which, if you ask some people on the internet, the contestants are given the answers beforehand. So, there you go. <laughs> they must give you a booklet, right? Like, how else would you know all this stuff? They must, right. like, give you right. a booklet of, like, material that they're going to be covering. <laughs> like, yeah. how would, like, it It just... it Don't it, even... It, it's not worth it. <laughs> it is, it is mind-boggling yep. that people think that we're provided with the like study guides or material like study guides like, yeah. or like you know and just like couldn't be bothered to commit it to memory mm-hmm. right like i am all right i just my, my brain explodes if i think about it for too long let's move on daily double number one is in a fair piece of entertainment at the 800 dollars level and amy finds it at the 16th pick she has 4200 to bonnie's 1400 and taylor's 1200 and she wagers 3,000. And the clue is, this British event ended in 1788, but is remembered largely thanks to a Simon and Garfunkel song. And she gets that one correct with Scarborough Fair. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Man, that song gets stuck in my head yep. every time. Mm-hmm. So now it's stuck in my head because, like, yeah, I watched that episode. <laughs> yep. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Amy's at 9,400. Bonnie's at 2,600, Taylor's at 3,000, and we have the double Jeopardy categories, overseas territories, poetry collections, medicine, with an M in quotation marks, design and typography, TV husbands, and embedded numeric homophones. Each response will contain a homophone of one of the numbers from 1 to 10. That one was... I don't know how I feel about it. Just that... that category of having those homophones in it i i didn't i don't know yes it had those i don't think that really played a role in like figuring out the yeah correct answer which is fine but i i don't know it felt like it felt almost too much to have to parse yeah for for the the clues that they were giving um there was a reversal in that at the 1200 dollars level this adjective means resembling the proverbial king of the jungle. Taylor rang in and said, what is lionine? And was ruled correct at first, but uh, a little bit later on, that was uh, that was reversed because the correct response is leonine, L-E-O. And there's no, mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's no real no, way like, to pronounce that yeah. E as an I. So. Yeah, like if you rang in and said leonine. Right, that's kind of like... Like you would probably get credit because E is sometimes pronounced in that way. And like it's it's a viable guess of like, you know, having seen the word but not knowing how to pronounce mm-hmm. it. But there's no situation in which the letter E is pronounced as it's pronounced I. I, yeah. Yeah. I thought Good the enough. design and typography category was fun. It was kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. The typography questions, I think, were um, just a couple of them. The other ones were more design-focused. There was one asking, in font types, the word that follows slab and sans, or sans, uh, and Taylor got that one with serif. Um, that's like the little the little like strokes at the edge hmm. uh, like the ends of the ends of lines and sans serif means just like it doesn't have that right like comic sans has no right. serifs and uh, and there was a there was a fun kind of video clue at the $2000 level where they showed the word jeopardy with the with sort of uneven spacing between the letters and then moved them into place and said it's the process seen here 
by which all letters become perfectly spaced. That's kerning. <laughs> Ironically, I feel like the J archive where we where we get all of our clues, sometimes the kerning is not quite right between the R and the N, and it looks like a letter M. <laughs> Ironically. Yes. Yes. So that poetry collections category is where we get daily double number two. Uh, I will say a couple of these clues I got correct because of things we've talked about on the podcast. Yay, learning! Uh, learning poetry, if my life depends on it. But Daily Double number two is uh, at the $1,600 level. Pick number 13, Taylor finds it. He is at 9000 behind Amy's 13000 ahead of Bonnie's 2600 and he wagers 2000 Gets the clue. The title of this Elizabeth Barrett Browning collection does not come from her nationality, but from her nickname. And he doesn't know it, so he guesses what is the queen, which, not close, that is sonnets from the Portuguese, mm-hmm. her, her famous collection. Yes. I was not able to recall that. That was a tough one, mm. I thought. And Daily Double number three is in the Overseas Territories category at the $2,000 level, and Taylor finds it at the 14th pick. He has 7000 at this point to Amy's... 13,000 and Bonnie's 2,600. Um, it's back to back. So he's, he's just dropped, he's just dropped down to 7,000, but this time he makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. Though part of its name was a Roman designation for Scotland, this new Pacific Island territory belongs to France. He tries what is New Brunswick, but New Caledonia is the correct response here. So he drops down to zero and has to start building back up with only 16 clues left on the board. Yeah, so that that kind of secures the game for Amy, mm-hmm. basically, at that point. Yeah. And at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Amy is in a lock position at 23,800. Bonnie's at 5,000, and Taylor is at 800. And we get the final Jeopardy category, History. And the clue, in 1985, the mayor of Rome went to a suburb of Tunis to sign a treaty ending this after more than 2,100 years. Taylor, man, just a just a rough go of it, wrote, what is the Carthaginian war? He did not finish getting war out, which meant they could not accept it as a correct response. It's like he had 800. It's a lot. Like game. what? A, but, and, like what I else mean, was it going to be, right? Like, I yeah, but I mean... I, I do understand, yeah. like, with a, a rule as specific as you have to actually write down the letters. <laughs> I I yeah. understand that. Like, I'm yeah. not saying they shouldn't have. It's just like, what a what a tough break for a guy yeah. who just got like punched in the gut with two wrong daily doubles. Yep. Like, yeah. Anyway, that was not accepted. Bonnie wrote, "What is Ron?" <laughs> and Ken said, well, that's a nice shout out to Ron, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't know what she was going for. Maybe she was starting to write Roman something, but I, yeah. no no idea. Uh, that's incorrect. She majored 3,300. And Amy got it correct with what is the Third Punic War or Carthaginian War Wars. or There are various ways to refer to it, but that is correct. And she wagered 10,000 and got herself up to 33,800. So on Friday, November 19th, we have the contestants Chinyan Vo, a Catholic seminarian from Portland, Oregon, uh, represent. I also am clergy. <laughs> uh, I too am human. 
Greetings, <laughs> fellow kids. Um, <laughs> uh, we have Gordon Spates, a poster librarian. That is such a cool job title from Los Angeles, California. And we have Amy Schneider, an engineering manager from Oakland, California, whose two-day cash winnings total 65400 And our Jeopardy round categories are World Leaders Leave the Scene, Essays, Speaking Truth to Power Companies, Also in Your Bathroom, the American Music Awards, apparently airing this Sunday, I guess last Sunday, now that you're listening to this, and Into the Jet Stream. The letters J, E, and T will all show up in that order in the correct responses, but perhaps with other letters in between. I mean, they really went for it with those jet clues. The $800 level, the suspension of a court proceeding, that's adjournment. It's like, yeah, it fits the category. That's a lot of letters in there. Yeah. Yeah. Judgmental. Mm-hmm. Rejuvenate. Really spaces the J, the E, and the T out. It also has a, an E after the T, so that might throw you off, too. Yeah. I thought the also in your bathroom category was fun. We had clues like melodramatic daytime TV opera. That's soap. Soap is also in your bathroom. Horny lizard covering. That's scale. You might find a scale there. And uh, in a George Eliot novel title, A Mill is on This River. That's the floss. I just, I, I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. It was, a, it was a fun. Fun little change of pace. Yeah. Yeah. I liked seeing Amy get the $800 level of essays. It seemed like she was familiar with this author, you know, beyond just knowing the name. Uh, mm-hmm. The title of his Me Talk Pretty One Day comes from him trying to master French in Paris. And she had like a little a little bit of a, a, a smile as she said, who is Sedaris? That's David Sedaris. We read that in senior year English. It's an enjoyable one. I like I like a lot of his stuff. Um, you know, he's still he's still writing. Yeah, I, I, I tend to enjoy David Sedaris as well. Um, he's one of the writers who I find it's much better if you hear him read his work. Like, reading it is fine. Mm. Hearing him read it, though, is great. He is able to perform it. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's oh he's great. And he part of how he got his break was reading his work for various public radio shows. He has a like sort of a long-standing association with This American Life, but I think there was maybe there was some public radio work before that connection yeah. formed. The Santa Land Diaries. Yeah. Is yeah. his uh it, it, I think was his kind of what was like the one of the things that got him famous and is his, is his chronicles of working as an elf in the Manhattan Macy's Santa Land. And it's hilarious. Yeah, I've read portions of that. Mm-hmm. It is good. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the Speaking Truth to Power companies. Again, uh, Jeopardy so woke. We haven't mentioned that in a while. Mm-hmm. It's at the $600 level. 23rd pick, Amy finds it. She is at 6200 Gordon's at 1400 And Chinyan is at 5600 She wagers 3000 and gets the clue, Florida Power and Light, given your state's nickname, it makes sense that you have 42 major plants for this type of energy. And she gets it correct with what is solar for the sunshine state. Yes. You don't really think, like, Florida, like, oh, solar power. but Sure, but, yeah. I mean, it does make sense. Yeah, it does. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Amy has 12,200, Gordon's at 1,600, and Chinhyan is at 5,200. 
And we get the Double Jeopardy categories, 19th Century Stuff, State Capitals by County, Down the Rabbit Hole, Barriers in Life, You Make Me Feel, and Like a Naturalized Woman. The um, miss and rebound on the $1,200 level of 19th century stuff I thought was interesting. There was a picture, and then the clue was the Mort Safe bars were not meant to stop zombies, but to prevent these criminals from getting in. And this was, um, there was a picture of like, kind of like a, like a grate of bars over mm. a grave at a cemetery. And Chinyan rang in and said, what are grave diggers? And that's incorrect. Gordon got the rebound. It's grave robbers. Right. And I'm, I, I'm guessing that that meant, my guess would be that Chinyan, like knew, he knew what he meant. He just went for the wrong phrase would be my guess yeah i i mean i would think so too because if you take a if you're able to stop and think for a moment it's like oh yeah you need grave diggers to literally dig the graves yep beforehand so that's not a criminal yes and grave robbing it that was a it was a whole issue it was quite popular daily double number two comes up in the barriers in life category at the $1,600 level, and Amy finds it at the 14th pick. She's at 20200 at this point. Gordon's at 4000 Chinyan is at 3600 And she wagers 2000 and gets the clue. The Lex Cornelia de Maestate said no general could lead an army out of his province. So the 49 BC crossing of this stream huge and that's phrased weirdly i feel yeah and amy takes her time with it but i i got the sense she was pretty confident when she said what is the rubicon mm-hmm. yep. and that's correct yeah that, it is correct that's true yeah and then daily double number three is in the 19th century stuff category at the two thousand dollar level it's pick number 20. Chinyan finds it at this point. He's at 4,400. Amy's all the way up at 25,000, and Gordon's at 5,200. Uh, any bets at all? I mean, if 10 clues left on the board, you got to give yourself the best chance of making it a game, so I don't blame him. Gets the clue. In 1899, the Queen laid the cornerstone for this London Arts and Design Museum, and he doesn't really know it. Then he guesses what's the Getty. But the, the, I think the reason that Victoria was specifically not named is because it is the Victoria and Albert Museum. Yes. So he drops down to zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Victoria and Albert is a, is a cool museum, by the way. If you're ever in London, I, I thought it was a, a really fun one. There's like a strong focus on like, not like fine arts, but like decorative objects. So hmm. it's, you know, it's vases and iron scroll work and... Yeah, I'm having a hard time remembering specifics, but everyday, you know, everyday things. I remember really enjoying it. Nice. So yeah, arts and design got me there because I because I'd been there. But yeah, I think the Queen. If you know that there's a Victoria and Albert Museum, the Queen should maybe point you toward. That's why they're like you said, Kyle. That's why they're making that wording choice. Mm-hmm. So sadly, Chinyan tries to get back onto the board and has some misses and at the end of double jeopardy round amy's in a lock position with twenty nine thousand eight hundred. gordon's at 4800 and chinyan is finishing in the red at negative 2000 so he does not get to participate in final jeopardy where the category is 20th century american authors and the clue is the old courthouse museum in monroeville alabama has exhibits devoted to these two authors and childhood friends 
This one, it seemed easy to me, but maybe it's because of my particular trivia strengths, but they both got it. Gordon wrote, who are Harper Lee and Truman Capote? And that is correct. I had like a little bit of a thought process about whether I would put first names or last names only. It's such a trivia thing to coach yourself to do last names only if you can. Mm -hmm. Because if you use the first name and it's wrong... Right. Then you're needlessly costing yourself a correct answer. You know, like right. you, they'll accept the last name only. So, mm-hmm. but also like Harper Lee and Truman Capote, their first names are so ingrained. Kind of like part of their. For me. Like it's like, yeah. it, 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 that like I, I, uh, it feels weird to call them Lee and Capote. Mm-hmm. Gordon's wagered 4,000. That brings him up to 8,800. And Amy has who are Lee and Capote. So she's gone for last names only. Good trivia practice although in this case it feels strange to me right uh, and she's wagered fifteen thousand, which brings her up to forty four thousand eight hundred. and she's a three-day champion we'll see her back on monday yes indeed three-day champion hundred and ten thousand dollars she's been uh on social media and there have been some articles about her generating some buzz because there have not been too too many openly trans Jeopardy champions. She is not the first, however, and she has pointed that out when every time have, she's been asked. Yeah, yes. when folks have falsely given her that particular title, she's like, "Nope, I'm not the first. Looking forward to seeing her back on Monday. So this is the time in the middle of the episode where we take a moment to remind you that we have a Patreon. It's Patreon.com/PotentPotables. Uh, there's a little content on there, and we are continuing to really berate ourselves um, <laughs> for for not putting more on there. So yeah, no, it's a real a- emotional burden for us. <laughs> it hasn't worked yet to really make many changes, but presumably, if we continue at it, we will start start to put more stuff on there. Uh, no, we, we are trying to get more stuff on there for you all. And we really, really appreciate your support. Those of you who are helping us to cover the costs of making this podcast. We are we're starting to work with an audio editor. If you have some funds and you're not a Patreon supporter yet, we are able to pay him by tapping into some of our banked funds. But we would we would love to get a few more Patreon supporters and, you know, make this a sustainable venture. So if you have the ability to throw us a few dollars a month and you want us to be able to keep doing what we're doing, we would welcome your support. But we also know there are more important things in the world than our podcast. So we like to also at this time mention a few that we care about. BlackLivesMatter.com communityjusticeexchange.org, and the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe. There are links to all of those in our show notes. So Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I do. I very much do. Are we talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Oh no, you got it! Yes! We were talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. How did you do that? You never do it that. Just, I know, I never do that. It just seemed like such a good one. Why didn't you start by guessing Martin Luther's 95 Theses? Uh, because that was later in the week, so that's lower down on my list that uh, I wrote down. There we go. Yes. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was the next one, and then my third guess was going to be the Falklands. Yep. Those all were things that I considered, but I decided to go for the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which was, of course, a clue on the Monday game in the National Geographic Ocean, a global odyssey category. Uh, The clue there was the plastic and debris strewn area known as the Great Pacific. This covers 600,000 square miles between Hawaii and California. 
And Molly tried what is a landfill, but that, of course, is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And I thought to myself, I know that that exists, and that's about it. So let's let's do some learning. So the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is uh, it's a garbage patch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a gyre of marine debris particles in the central North Pacific Ocean. Um, I thought about reading you off some longitudes and latitudes, and I was like, it's not that deep of a dive, Emily. Well, how will I know to avoid it then? Right. In all of my travels. It probably will not come up, most likely, would be my guess. Okay. So the North Pacific subtropical gyre is formed by four currents rotating clockwise around an area of 7.7 million square miles. The California current, the North Equatorial current, the Kuroshio Current, and the North Pacific Current. The gyre is divided into two areas. Uh, The eastern garbage patch is the one that's kind of between Hawaii and California that the clue mentioned, and the western garbage patch extends eastward from Japan to the Hawaiian Islands. People hear of this and kind of imagine like enormous islands of floating garbage, but that's not quite correct. It's a lot of garbage. It's also spread out over like quite a lot of space, so it can't be detected by satellite imagery. Even casual boaters or divers in the area don't necessarily notice anything weird because the patch is widely dispersed and it consists primarily of suspended fingernail sized or smaller some even microscopic particles Mm. microplastics right if you've heard the term microplastics right if you are in a garbage patch of microplastics you don't necessarily notice anything Uh, research indicates that the patch is rapidly accumulating it is believed to have increased tenfold each decade since 1945 estimated to be double the size of Texas. The area contains, I have a bunch of different estimates here and they're kind of spread out over the thing, over the over the deep dive and they may not all reconcile with each other. I think because they're from different methodologies, different years. Mm. So I encountered the number 3 million tons. Wait, I encountered, wait, 79. Yeah, 3 million tons. Yeah, 3 million tons, I think is a, oh, you know what? Another factor here is whether you're counting the entire area or only the like the densest section. So 79,000 metric tons is a number that I came across a few times. Microplastics make up about 94% of the pieces, but a much smaller proportion of the volume, which, you know, makes sense when you think about it, that the <laughs> when it was studied, they, they uh, collected samples and then classified what they found into microplastics, mesoplastics, macroplastics, and megaplastics. 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 And there is an enormous number of microplastic particles, which are only about 8% of the of the volume of the plastic in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The seafloor beneath the Great Pacific Garbage Patch may also be an underwater trash heap because, you know, there is marine debris that sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And there is there's a suspicion that there's likely also a concentration of garbage on the on the ocean floor there. There are other garbage patches in, I think, five similar gyres throughout the world. But uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, I think, is believed to be the biggest. Researchers hypothesized that the patch existed 
1988, based on observations of ocean currents creating concentrated areas of debris. Extrapolating from findings in the Sea of Japan, they hypothesized that similar conditions would occur in other parts of the Pacific, where prevailing currents were favorable to the creation of stable waters. And they specifically indicated the North Pacific Gyre as a place where there was likely to be a garbage patch. And then it was actually discovered in 1997 by oceanographer Charles J. Moore. He was returning home through the North Pacific Gyre after competing in the Trans-Pacific Yacht Race. And he claims to have come upon an enormous stretch of floating debris. He alerted fellow ocean Curtis Ebbesmeyer, who dubbed the region the Eastern Garbage Patch, so the, the eastern portion of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. 80% of the plastic in the ocean is estimated to come from land-based sources. The remaining 20% comes from boats and other marine sources, but these percentages vary by region. A 2015 study in Science found that the discarded plastics and other debris come from the six top sources are China, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, and Thailand. But, you know, the U.S. is also contributing. <laughs> let's, let's not let ourselves off the hook here. Once in the ocean, the sun breaks the plastics down into tinier and tinier pieces, which is a process known as photodegradation, which leads to the formation of these microplastics. A 2018 study found that synthetic fishing nets made up nearly half the mass of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I'm not sure how that squares with, oh, you know what, 80% of the plastic in the ocean is from land-based sources, 20% from boats, but that varies regionally. So in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, we've got, a, we've got a lot of synthetic fishing nets. One study found nearly half the mass to be synthetic fishing nets. Marine debris disturbs marine food webs in the North Pacific subtropical gyre. As microplastics and other trash collect on or near the surface of the ocean, they block sunlight from reaching plankton and algae below, so disrupting the food web in, in really complex ways. There have been a number of efforts to bring attention to this problem. The junk Raft project was organized by Dr. Marcus Erickson, Joel Pascal, and Anna Cummins in Long Beach, California in 2008, and launched with Charles J. Moore's Algalita Marine Research Foundation. They hoped to creatively raise awareness about plastic debris and pollution in the ocean, and specifically the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, by sailing 2,600 miles across the Pacific Ocean on a 30-foot raft made from an old Cessna 310 aircraft fuselage and six pontoons filled with 15,000 old plastic bottles. So the raft set off from Long Beach, California on June 1st, 2008, and arrived in Honolulu, Hawaii on August 28, 2008. A similar project by British environmentalist David de Rothschild and his team worked to uh, raise awareness of plastic pollution by creating a large catamaran made of plastic bottles, which they called the Plastiki. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. And in 2010, the crew successfully navigated the Plastiki from San Francisco, California to Sydney, Australia. There's an artwork project called the Garbage Patch State Wasteland by artist Maria Cristina Finucci, first exhibited in 2013, but it's an ongoing transmedia environmental artwork is what they're calling it. It's like, uh, I had a hard time understanding what it was from reading written descriptions of it but it's something to do with plastic bags full of water with like 
bottle caps and other plastic debris in the water arranged and like with a mirror, depending on where this installation is going. It's notable and has been exhibited in a number of places. And there's an organization that's very, very involved in work on the Great Pacific Garbage Patch called the Ocean Cleanup, researching and attempting to mitigate this problem. So in March 2018, the Ocean Cleanup published a paper summarizing their findings from a series of expeditions researching the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. They had crossed the Great Pacific Garbage Patch with 30 vessels to make observations and take samples with 652 survey nets. They collected a total of 1.2 million pieces, which they counted and categorized, as I, as I mentioned. And then in order to also account for a larger but more rare debris, they also overflew the patch in an aircraft equipped with LIDAR sensors and published their findings about the composition of the garbage patch. How to address this issue has stumped scientists, but the most recent approach from this organization has shown some promising results. Their goal is to remove 90% of floating ocean plastic by 2040, and they've been developing and testing prototypes with limited success initially. Their 2018 model broke in the water. The 2019 version was not efficient enough to make a meaningful dent in the in the sheer volume. But their newest U-shaped net system, nicknamed Jenny, ran for several months this past summer into fall and seems to have had some promising results. Uh, so guided by two boats, this half mile long installation works by catching large and small debris from the seawater in a funnel shaped net. Once it's full of trash, workers empty the plastic onto the boat before taking it ashore to recycle. Other scientists have expressed concern about this. One concern is about the risk of accidentally ensnaring fish or other marine life in the collection net. The ocean cleanup claims that it is an animal-friendly system because it is slow-moving, moving at a speed at which most marine life can swim away, that the system has escape routes and lights to guide disoriented animals out of the netting. The contraption has removed 63,000 pounds in its test run over a period of a few months. And the founder, Dutch inventor Boyan Slat, says they would need about 10 of these jennies to clean up half of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in five years. Other critiques of the project, one scientist says they basically spent millions of dollars inventing trawl fishing, which... <laughs> Is fair. And there are concerns about the environmental impacts of the type of boats that are used. And there are other arguments also that the focus should be on preventing the further dumping of plastics rather than focusing on removing what's already there. But it's heartening to see people work together to make some progress. So yeah, that's a good thing. And that's pretty much what I was able to find out about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's, troubling but human ingenuity is pretty cool yeah yeah well cool certainly more than i knew about it yeah so are you ready for a quiz i am ready for a quiz all right this is a quiz about garbage and trash and things of that nature right up my alley all right and you are starting with 10 points which is good because i'm wondering whether i have made these questions overly obscure that's okay um, all right, so you are at 10 points, and here is question one. He loves trash. Anything dirty or dingy or dusty. He, of course, is Oscar the Grouch. What is the apropos name of his pet worm? 
What is the name of his pet worm? I mean, I have something came immediately to mind, and I, I don't remember if this is actually it or if it's just me being a doofus. But I think his name is Wormy. Oh, I'm sorry, that is not correct. What is it? It's slimy. 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 It is slimy. Yeah, I tr- I tried to cue it a little bit with dirty or dingy or right. dusty, right? Like yeah, the, no, like, it, I, yeah. that's his name. Yeah. 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 I also haven't. For I don't know. We haven't we haven't done Sesame Street really with the kids yet, and I don't know uh, why. We probably should. Yeah, Sesame Street. It's lovely although you know i i never i've like we've done a little sesame street with my kids but we've never like gotten like deep into sesame street yeah slimy's mother is named eartha and his father is named dusty and his baby sister is named sloppy (laughs) can i name my kids slimy and sloppy (laughs) i don't know do you love trash i mean anyway yeah all right so you're at 10 points and question two Collecting garbage is one of the most dangerous jobs in the United States. It is the fifth deadliest in the U.S., Uh. with a fatal injury rate of 34 per 100,000 workers, according to a study from the University of Delaware. I'm going to name five other jobs that are listed on that list of, I think, the, the top 25 most dangerous. Which of the following five has a higher fatality rate? than garbage collecting. So which one's in the top four? Okay. Cement masons, loggers, police officers, crossing guards, mining machine operators. Oh, man. I don't don't really have a reference for any of these. Like, oh yeah, I happen to know that I remember hearing that that one has a really high fatality rate but the one that seems most tragic and well maybe not most tragic but most almost ironic and therefore must be correct is crossing guards Mm, uh, crossing guards is actually further down loggers uh Mm, logging is the logging is the number one most dangerous i I mean i could totally see that yeah makes sense yeah, and the other four that are that are more deadly than garbage collecting are log workers, aircraft pilots, uh, which initially surprised me because plane crashes are are fairly rare. But when I think of that, I'm thinking of like commercial, like you know, right? Like yeah, flights. like a like a big airliner going. Yeah, down, yeah. But aircraft pilots, um, due to you know crashes of of like small privately owned planes and helicopters, derrick operators in oil, gas, and mining. And okay. roofers. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That was sort of a take a lucky guess one if you didn't happen to know that logging is sure. yeah, that logging is per capita the most dangerous job. All right. Question three. The four hundred year untold history of class in America is the subtitle of what twenty sixteen nonfiction bestseller? by Nancy Eisenberg with a theme-relevant and racially-loaded title. Hmm. I guess it's sort of awkward that I did just ask you to, like, guess <laughs> guess something racially-loaded. Um, well, I mean, when I think of, like, racially, like, racial terms with the... I mean, white trash is coming to mind. 
but I don't know a book title with that in its name, so I guess my guess is just going to be White Trash. White Trash is correct. Okay. Yeah. White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. One of the things that comes up pretty often in recommendations about kind of reading about race in America, so it's on my list for for next year. Hmm. Um, I haven't read it yet. It was nominated for a bunch of awards. Oh. Um, Yeah. All right. You are at... 20 points. And question four. Trash polka is a visual style created by artists Simone Pfaff and Volker Mirschke in Würzburg, Germany. Within what discipline? Other styles within this same discipline, uh, These none of these are trash polka. These are other, other styles, but within the same art form, are traditional, which is also known as Sailor Jerry, black work, watercolor, Irizumi and Tribal. Yeah, I I believe based on Sailor Jerry and especially Tribal that that is tattoo. Yes, yes, uh, it is a tattoo style. So trash polka is a mixed media form of tattooing. I mean, it's all it's tattooing. What? Is that I know? It's right? like they put they put little screens <laughs> in your skin. Like, what do you mean mixed yeah. media? So it it is mixed media in that it is a form of tattooing where you create something that mixes styles to look kind of collagey. Um, so okay. there are photorealistic elements combined with graphic elements, large black areas, brush strokes, geometric or abstract shapes, words in there, typically mainly in black and red. Yeah, so look up look up trash polka like on Google image search to like get a sense of this, but I'd, I'd never heard of it and it was uh, it was kind of fun to discover. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so 30. And question five. A garbage plate is a regionally specific dish. The name was trademarked in 1992 by Nick Tahu Hatsa, restaurant owner. A garbage plate consists of a starchy base, which typically the diner gets to pick two from a variety of choices, including home fries, pasta salad, french fries, that kind of thing. The starchy base is then topped with some proteins, cheeseburger, eggs, red hots, which I think is like mm. a, that's like a, is that like a sausage, like hot dog yes. kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. And then you pour meat sauce over the top of that and onions and top it all with some mustard. That sounds good. Yeah. What photographically significant city is home to this plate of garbage? Photographically significant I, I'm trying to I'm trying to give you a clue in case you don't know garbage plate, which I I, I know. Uh, I I don't know garbage plate. Uh, if like photographically significant, does not. Okay, so I'll talk through my thought process. Uh, photographically significant. I have no idea what city. If you're actually getting at like, has a lot of pictures taken of it. Oh, I see. I see what you mean. I have. I have no idea what that means, but mm. as far as a city that is relevant to, like, the history of photography and commercial photography... That's what I meant. Then my guess is Rochester. And your je- your guess is correct. All right. Yes. Rochester, <laughs> New York, home of Kodak. Yeah. And the garbage plate. And the two things that it has contributed. Just kidding. Also, the Eastman School of Music. Right. Yes, indeed. I, I almost meant... I, I was like thinking about like making a list of 
Rochester things. And if I had if I had taken it in that direction, I would have I would have mentioned the Eastman School of Music. Frederick Douglass also lived in Rochester for a while. Oh, um, yeah. All right. So you are at forty points. What are we gonna call this category? We'll call it animal memes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've already given me a question on Grumpy Cat, so it can't be that. So I don't feel too confident. I'll go with I'll go with 30 points. All right. I'm second guessing myself on the use of the term meme here. No, you know what? It's fine. It's fair. All right. Uh, 30 points. So for 70, a 2014 Reddit thread introduced the slang term trash panda for what animal based on their black eye markings and their propensity for getting into garbage cans? Uh, that would be the raccoon. That is indeed the raccoon. And r slash trash panda quickly became hugely popular. Yes, I like that term. Yeah. <laughs> While I was trying to find good questions about raccoons, uh, I learned that the word raccoon comes from the Powhatan, meaning animal that scratches with its hands. Interesting. Yes. So, hey, you got... You got your final question, and you did great on this quiz. So you're finishing with 70 points. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are Jeopardy fans, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Quicker.